This morning, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38, in a message that I've entitled, The Miracle of Christmas. The Miracle of Christmas. As we uh, set aside this time of Advent to reflect upon the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it is important for us to understand that it is an absolute miracle. Read with me in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And may God bless the reading of his word. Now, Luke, as we know and Scripture tells us, is a doctor. And he writes a very uh, thorough historical account of the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, he tells us in the opening of his gospel in verses 1 through 4 that insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainly concerning, you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In other words, he went and he talked with the eyewitnesses. He talked with the individuals that uh, lived and walked amongst Jesus and, and those that were there at various events. And I have a personal opinion that where Luke gets what we just read in chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, where he gets his information from was Mary herself. I have an opinion that he talked with Mary, and in many ways, what we read in verses 26 through 38 of chapter 1 is the birth certificate of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On a birth certificate, there are three main things that individuals want to put down on a birth certificate. Who's the father? Who's the mother and what's the baby's name? And Luke here will show us in verses 26 through 38 that the father is none other than God Almighty, that the mother is this peasant girl in this no-name, nothing, backwater town called Nazareth, this woman named Mary who lived in obscurity, 
and the the name of the son would be Jesus. Now, for Luke to write this and to present this as it were truth, as it were to be historically accurate for us to know that this event transpired the way that it transpired would have brought uh, a criticism from his colleagues. For him to say, a man of, of science, to say that God worked in a supernatural way, that a virgin would give birth to a son, would have brought criticism upon him and still brings criticism upon many of us today. We uh, are not uh, some new uh, uh, followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see that even those in that day were not exempt from uh, uh, persecution, were not exempt from scorn or criticism. And we see this, this beautiful birth certificate of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I remember when my daughter Ava was born and, and being in the room when they, they came in to, to help complete the birth certificate. And before that, that the nurse asked my wife, she looked at me very kind of suspectly, the, the lady. Now, they say that they all have to ask this question. I don't know. She looked at me and then looked at Grace and said, now, do you feel safe at home? <laughs> I didn't say anything in the moment because I was waiting for her to look at me and say, do you feel safe at home? <laughs> but it never came. It never, it never came. What, what do, do I feel? Why would she at me? Not, what, what in the world is going on? The question is for us in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, do you feel safe? That's what... Luke is really trying to point us to in this passage and what we'll see Mary exude and what we will see her display is this safety in the presence of God Almighty because she has this security built upon who he is and what he is calling her to do. And so the first thing that I want us to see, I really want to zero in on the third point. So we're going to move through the first two fairly quickly uh, as much as that means to me. The, the, the first thing that I want you to see is the miracle, that this is a miracle, that we have a, a God of miracles. The angel will say to Mary that there is nothing that is impossible for God, absolutely nothing impossible for God. Are you in need of a miracle this morning? Then make no mistake, there is a God that we are worshiping in this place who is a God of miracles that can do things that you never dreamed possible for him to do. I believe that there is a miracle coming one day where Jesus will come on the clouds and his church will be raptured up to him and we will be given glorified bodies as a result. I believe in the miracle of the rapture. I believe in the miracle of one day all justice being served at the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I believe in that miracle. 
I believe that God can do the impossible. I believe in the miracle that one day Seth is going to lead us in worship in khakis and a shirt other than the color of black. I believe it. I believe it. He's a God of miracles. There is nothing impossible for God Almighty. C.S. Lewis would call the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He would say this is the, the grand miracle. He wrote a fabulous book called Miracles. And he talks about the supernatural. And he talks about the miracles of God. It is a fantastic book. It is a great apologetic of our faith. And as much as I love that, I think at times we try to be overly apologetic. Not that we make excuses for our faith. When I talk about being apologetic, I'm talking about defending our faith. That is important. Listen, we need to know why we believe what we believe. Make no mistake about that. But there are some things that, listen, you can't bring down to this tangible thing that you can hold and understand every aspect of God Almighty. There are things that have transpired. There are things that are transpiring. There are things that will transpire that are supernatural and beyond our scientific reasoning. And sometimes I think we try to break God down to this, this formula to be figured out. But our Heavenly Father is not a formula to be figured out. He is one to be faithfully followed in obedience. Sometimes I think we get a little bit too apologetic. Now, when we talk about miracles, it's not so much that God is suspending the laws of nature as it is he is exercising his sovereignty over them. Listen, God is always sovereign. He can do whatever he wants with whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it. Miracles aren't so much some abnormality where the laws of nature have been suspended as they are God just chooses to do something different in that moment because he is a sovereign God. And so in, in, in essence, everything is natural. Even the supernatural is natural. Even uh, miracles are natural because it is God over his creation doing what God, the sovereign God, does as a sovereign God. I love what C.S. Lewis writes in the book Miracles. He says, it is a profound mistake to imagine that Christianity ever intended to dissipate the bewilderment and even the terror, the sense of our own nothingness, which come upon us when we think about the nature of things. It comes to intensify them. In other words, Christianity was never meant to make you feel safe apart from God. It was never meant to make you feel comfortable apart from God. There ought to be an awe. There ought to be a, a sense of bewilderment when we think about God Almighty. And out of that and our understanding of our nothingness, we understand his grandeur. And therefore, we are safe, not in any way that we can understand God, but we find ourselves safe because of who he is and the fact that we can't understand him because if we could understand him, he wouldn't be God. He goes on to write, without such sensations, there is no religion. Many a man brought up in the glib profession of some shallow form of Christianity Cultural Christianity, shallow Christianity was present in the days of Lewis. It's present in the days of us who comes through reading 
astronomy to realize for the first time how majestically indifferent most reality is to man and who perhaps abandons his religion on that account may at that moment be having his first genuinely religious experience. Christianity does not involve the belief that all things were made for man. In other words, God doesn't fit into a box that we create for him. He doesn't follow a set of rules that we give him. And when we understand the smallness of self and the greatness of God, then we start to really understand the Christian faith. Because then we understand who it is who took on flesh. Then it is, that's when we begin to understand our great need for a Savior. We understand the miracle it is of God becoming flesh and God restoring sinful man back to himself. The fact that we even have an opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus is a miracle in and of itself. For he is the true and living God made flesh. When the angel Gabriel talks to Mary in verse 30 and says that you have found favor with God, this is not how uh, Catholicism takes Mary to venerate her and to make her this, this deity. This idea that she has found favor with God is not based upon any personal piety of Mary. It's based upon the gracious choosing of God Almighty. You found favor. Why, do you, why have you found favor? Why have you found favor? Not because of who you are, but because God in his sovereignty has exercised his right to choose somebody to bear the incarnate Christ. It's not anything about her. It's everything about God. You have found favor with the Lord, not because of who you are, but because of who he is and the fact that he is a gracious God. We don't need to venerate Mary. But at the same time, there's a lot that we can learn from her as well. C.S. Lewis goes on to write in the book Miracles, An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that is quite enough. The fact that he is incarnate, that he pursued us, that he came after us to adopt us into his forever family, that we will become the bride of Christ, that demands our whole lives to be sacrificed for him. This Christmas season that we would be reminded that he came for us to die for us so that we can be reconciled back to God and rightfully experience life in the abundance that we were created to experience and to do it all for his glory. Jeremiah 10, 2-5 speaks of the tragedy of functional saviors and idolatry and false gods. Thus says the Lord, learn, learn not the way of the nations... Nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. Listen, uh, all functional saviors, all idolatry, uh, all things that we glorify other than God Almighty, all it is is vanity. That's what King Solomon came after. He had everything that he could ever dream or imagine. He accomplished everything in this world and this life that a man could accomplish. At the end of it, he said, it's like chasing after the wind. It's all vanity. It's all vanity. 
goes on to say, a tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Individuals are serving gods that cannot move. They cannot move in their hearts. They cannot move any mountains out of the way. They cannot move things. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. You know scarecrows were in the Bible? There you go, right there. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Listen, functional saviors, whatever they are, idols in our lives, whatever they are, they can do no good for you. None. And what God's word is trying to get us to understand is that he didn't give us some piece of wood to put on a mantle. He didn't give us some some iconography to put up on our wall. He, he didn't just give us some, some immaterial force that, that moves through the, the, the world. I don't care what your metachlorian count is. He gave us himself in the flesh, the second member of the Holy Trinity. This miracle we see is in Mary's virginity. If you're taking notes, we see that she was a virgin. This isn't some kind of Greek mythology that God took on flesh and, and, and uh, slept with some woman, impregnating her, uh, leaving her with a demigod. Uh, we're not talking about Superman. We're not talking about, uh, we're, we're not talking about Hercules. We're, not talking about, we're talking about God Almighty who has always been taking upon flesh, that Mary was a virgin. But we see all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15, when God Almighty in the garden says to, to uh, Eve that your seed will have enmity with the seed of Satan. But if you know any kind of basic biology, you know that, that women don't have seed. They don't have seeds. They have eggs. There was already in Genesis 3.15 a foreshadowing of the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that there was going to be some type of supernatural birth, that the one who was going to crush the head of the serpent, it was going to be some supernatural way because it wasn't going to be through a woman's egg. It was going to be through a seed, and that seed was going to be implanted into her womb by God Almighty himself. We see this miracle in Mary's virginity and the virgin birth. We also see it. In Jesus' divinity and humanity. This is what theologians and scholars call the hypostatic union. God and man. Fully God and fully man. Together in the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One doesn't dilute the other. At times he acted in his humanity. At times he acted in his divinity. But... He wasn't just sort of God and sort of man. He was fully man and fully God. That in and of itself is a miracle. That in and of itself defies any kind of logical understanding whatsoever. But it is at the very premise of our faith. Look at verse 35 and we see the Holy Trinity, the miracle of God and the fact that he is one God in three persons. We see the Trinity even in the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at work. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That, that word overshadow is really a picture of when God would indwell the tabernacle in the Shekinah glory and indwell the temple in the Shekinah glory. That he would come and he would take up a special residence with man. And here we see that uh, the second member of the Holy Trinity, by the power of the Holy Spirit, or through the Holy Spirit, and by the power of the Most High, our, our Heavenly Father will overshadow you, and God will come to dwell within a specific location in a specific way through the birth or the gestation process of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There we see the Holy Trinity, even in the Incarnation, at the Annunciation uh, to Mary of the coming of the Messiah. And the divinity, the divinity of, of Christ and the humanity of Christ and the fact of the Holy Trinity, those are things that we base our faith upon. If you begin to go outside of those two, you start to go outside of orthodoxy of Christianity. When you deny the Holy Trinity, when you deny the hypostatic union that Jesus was fully man and fully God, you have now started to go outside of Christianity. These are core beliefs that we must understand in our faith. Now, the second thing that I want us to see is that through this miracle was going to come the Messiah, the Savior. That we see that the Messiah, the one that we sang about, that we fall to our knees in response to, it's the same as Christ, Messiah, uh, same as, as Christ, the anointed one. It's the one who had been anointed to come and to seek and to save the lost. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But this is a full acceptance. This is what we must understand about the incarnation and about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that he came into the world to save sinners. Why is there such a rejection of Christmas in a secular world? Because at the very heart of what we celebrate in Christmas is a mirror being held up to sinful man to say, you can't save yourself. You are separated from a perfect and a holy God by your sin, and you can't undo the brokenness in your life, so you need to look away from self, and you need to look to the one who can. And the world hates that. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. Don't tell me that the way I live my life is in opposition to God. I make my own rules for my own life. And if I just wink and give a nod to God Almighty and I'm a good person according to my own standards, then one day he's going to let me into heaven. And that's not how God's word and his world has been written. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue sinners from their sin. If you're taking notes, I love that his name is to be Jesus. Verse 31 says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. His name speaks of his ministry. His name tells us, even in his name, tells us exactly what it is that he is going to be doing here on this earth. We see in Matthew's gospel in Chapter 1, verse 21, he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
We see that his ministry is to, is to save those from their sins. Do you sit in here today stuck in your sins, never having placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, trying to earn your salvation in some kind of way? Listen to me. Apart from Jesus Christ, you have absolutely no hope. But that's the reason why he came. He came for you. I firmly believe if you were the only person to ever be born on this earth, Jesus Christ would still have gone to the cross for you. He still would have gone through the gestation process and humbled himself to the point of death upon a cross for you. He came to seek you and to save you. Luke 19.10 tells us, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why did Christ have to come? Why did God have to take on flesh? Because we needed a substitute to pay for our sin penalty. There was no uh, amount of righteousness that we could conjure up or scrape together that we could present to God Almighty to be forgiven of our sins. But we were all underneath the, the, the curse of sin. And God comes to break that curse. He is not stained. He is unstained by the sin of this world because uh, he was God himself in the flesh. Holy, it says. You will. Uh, he will be called Holy, the Son of God. His name also speaks of his majesty, that he is unrivaled, that there is none like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We read in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name Jesus is majestic. There's something about that name. People are fine with you to talk about God all you want. You can talk in these general terms of God all you want, but it's amazing when you start talking about Jesus how individuals start getting uncomfortable real quick because there is something about that name. There's something about that name when you find yourself destitute in spirit and you are completely broken and you don't even have the words to articulate to God Almighty what it is that you are doing, but yet you can cry out, Jesus and that in and of itself is enough because there's something about that name. Verse 10 of Philippians 2 says, So that the name of Jesus, so at the name of, uh, of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will either do that this side of eternity or on this side of the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but you will do it. You will do it. And his name, therefore, speaks of his victory. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It speaks of his victory. As we look at this helpless babe in a manger at this time of year, and we understand who he is, we understand that there is victory to be found in Christ, even there in the tiny town of Bethlehem at the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Victory is being 
declared. You shall call his name Jesus, a name that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess. Acts 4.12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can't be saved by anybody else but Jesus. Now, the third thing that I want to draw your attention to is Mary. We see the miracle. We see the Messiah who is the Savior, and now we see Mary the servant. There are often two polar ends within the Christian faith. There are individuals who will take things way to to this extreme in one area of doctrine. And as a result, typically the pendulum swings back way over here and we take uh, an opposite end of that. Take, for instance, the Holy Spirit. You have some who live on this end of the spectrum. And if you were to go into a service where their doctrine takes the Holy Spirit to this end of the spectrum, ain't no telling what you might see. People running around, people uh, laughing really weirdly, flopping around on the floor like a fish. Uh, I talked about this one time. I went and I was ministering at a, a, a church that was geared specifically for individuals that were recovering uh, from addiction. And they did uh, what's called a runaway. Anybody know what a runaway is? They, right in the middle of, of worship, uh, the, the Holy Spirit hits them and they start running. They'll just start running through, through the church. Listen, where I'm from, when people start running, you run with them. Because <laughs> something just happened. Some, some either just popped off or it's about to pop off. So, when, so I'm in the middle of preaching. They, they're going. I'm like, oh, okay. You know something I don't. I'm ready to run. I think they thought, he ain't Baptist at all. Praise the Lord. This is Brother Pentecostal. No, I just didn't want to get shot. I thought we all, I thought we all going to die. So you have this end of the spectrum of the Holy Spirit, and then you have individuals that swing way over here and treat the Holy Spirit like that weird uncle, and we're called Baptist. And the reality is God's called us to be right here. The same thing with Mary. You have some that take an unscriptural view of Mary and hold her up as deity and say, you got to pray through her to get to God. Uh, the veil was torn, and it was torn from top to bottom, meaning God tore it. I ain't got to go through Mary. I got direct access. Jesus Christ is my high priest. When you're sick, do you want to talk to the doctor's mama or do you want to talk to the doctor? I want to talk to the doctor. Might be a lovely lady. <laughs> but she didn't go to school. She don't know all that. Jesus is a great physician. I'm going to talk to Jesus. Sometimes, though, we swing way over here. And because there's a view of her way over there, we, we, we don't really want to talk about it. But there's so much we can learn from Mary. There's so much we can learn from Mary. Man, I wanted to leave more time for this. Okay, we're going we gonna to get to it. John 12, 25 through 26 says this, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Do you notice that? Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, when you try to package up your life, when you try to cellophane your life, when you try to put it in a Ziploc bag and you try to preserve your life and you hold on to all the little comforts and this world has to offer, you're actually losing your life. It's when you put it in the hands of Jesus and say, do with it what you want, that you actually get to experience life. Now, there are times where individuals that are celebrities will, will, will pass away. They'll, they'll, they'll die, and people get real emotional about them, right? It's like, you ain't even know this person. But there's some kind of emotional connection with that. I've never had that happen really to me except for one person, the great DMX. Some of, some of you are like, who? DMX was a great poet of... Uh, <laughs> X going to give it to you. Okay. Um, I have an emotional connection with DMX. There was a time where I was contemplating suicide, and I had a, I had a gun. I was thinking about killing myself, and uh, there's a song of his called, uh, I'm slipping, I'm falling, I can't get up. And, man, for whatever reason, that, that song really brought me out, out of that, that, that darkness. He, he, he was a professing Christian. Now, he didn't always live like that. He was stuck in addiction, um, and addiction ultimately uh, took, his, took his life. Uh, but uh, I hope I see DMX uh, in heaven one day. Uh, Y'all want to talk to Paul? I, you know, I want to talk to Paul, but then DMX. Um, he tells his story one time. They're kind of the same. Uh, <laughs> he tells his story one time about how he was in the backyard of his mansion, and he saw this monarch butterfly, and it was huge. He said, I mean, it was, it was as big as, as my hands. It's the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen in my life. He said, I just had to, I had to have it. So he said he went to go and, and catch this monarch butterfly. And he said, well, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm stamping, I'm, I'm trampling on all of these flowers and all of this uh, beautiful landscape. And I'm trying to get it. And I'm, I'm, anything I can at all costs, I'm trying to get this butterfly. He says, I finally get it. He said, but when I get it, through the process of me getting a hold of it, I actually killed it. He said, here I am, and I'm looking at it in my hands. And he says, the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen in my life, and I killed it because I tried to keep it to myself. We do the same thing with our life. This life that we've been given, it is beautiful even though there is pain and sorrow and struggle. It is a beautiful gift from God. And when you try to hold on to it, when you try to keep it for what you want to keep it for and keep it all to yourself, what you're actually doing is killing it. But if you'll just let it be the beautiful thing that God has set for it to be, you get to actually experience the joy and the peace and the love that God desired for you to experience. Whoever loses, loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There are five things that I want to point out to you um, briefly um, about Mary. 
One was Mary's obscurity. She was a person that many people probably didn't give any second thought to outside of her family. She was in a town that had no significance whatsoever. In fact, it would be asked when Jesus was presented as the Christ, can anything good come from Nazareth? She's in a a backwoods, backwater, know-nothing town, and she is a peasant girl who life typically would mean nothing but hard work for her to get married and to have a bunch of children who would be just as impoverished as she was. And sometimes, I think we can feel the weight of obscurity in our life. Does God even know me? Does God even care? In motherhood, there's an obscurity that exists. For those of you that, that are mothers, for those of you that stay-at-home moms or working moms, for those of you that are walking through infertility, that maybe one day you, you want to be a mom, just for women in general, oftentimes there can be an obscurity, especially as a mother. The role of mother is, is, is tough, and, and men, we need to do a better job of, of lifting high and recognizing what it is that our, our wives and the mother of our children do in their role as mom. But all of us experience a little bit of obscurity in our lives to some degree, but, but God looks past that. God looks past that. In fact, uh, I wish we had so much more time than, than, than we do. But when you read uh, chapter 1 of Luke, verses 5 through 25, you see that what we read today in 26 to 38, really they should go together. But we're doing a chronological study, and we're going to come back to John in a minute uh, when we get to him. But we see that the same angel appeared to Zechariah in the temple, in the, the, the place of renown, Jerusalem, to an individual who had status in the society of that day. And he makes a promise and a guarantee. And you would think that the Messiah would be the one who was promised in, but it was John the Baptist, the forerunner. And so now the angel Gabriel goes with the message of God to a place of obscurity, to a person who had no prominence or social status. You see, God, our, our, our positioning in this world, God doesn't care. Last week, remember, God just uses broken people. And so we see Mary's obscurity, but we also see Mary's humility. In, in verse 29, when uh, the angel Gabriel comes and says, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. In fact, it says greetings. That's really not a great translation because the majority of times this word that is translated greetings here is used in the New Testament. It's actually translated rejoice. So he shows up and he says, rejoice, have joy. God's about to do something amazing. Rejoice, O favored one. The Lord is with you. This third week of Advent, we celebrate joy. And sometimes it doesn't feel like 
We have many things to be joyful about, but the Lord is with you. That in and of itself ought to produce joy in our lives. The Lord is with us. He will not leave us nor forsake us. He came for us, lived for us, died for us, rose from the grave, has promised eternal life to us. There is joy to be found in the Lord. And Mary's humility upon this wasn't to say, well, about time, I thought so. I mean, you see what all I'm doing? You see how I'm, how I'm following the law? See how I'm doing all of these different types of things? No. She was puzzled. In fact, the, the, the idea behind verse 29 is that she was going over this in her mind, that she was thinking through this in her mind. She was thinking through what, what could this possibly mean? So we see Mary's humility. We also see Mary's visibility. In verse 31, we see this word, behold. The angel said, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Behold, there's something supernatural at work that you can't see, but God is moving even when we can't see it. Then he uses that same terminology to say in verse 36, Behold, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her. In other words, he tells, here's a tangible sign for you to see. God gives us signs all the time. You're a sign. The person next to you that knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, they're a sign that God is still in the resurrection business. He's still in the business of redemption and restoration. He gives us signs all the time. Every Tuesday, we have a staff meeting. You think my sermons go long. We, we, they can't leave until I say it's over. So they, they come, and we just sit down, and we started construction in the, the new worship service. And the gentleman that oversees that is a, is a follower of Jesus Christ. His name is Michael. Uh, he has addiction in his history. Uh, God uh, took him through a ministry called Hope is Alive. Uh, he became a, a follower of Jesus Christ. He, his life was restored. And he came in and he said, hey, there's a gentleman that just walked in and he's needing some help. Can you talk with him? And can I tell you, my, my first thought was, I just sat down for this meeting. Like, we got to have this meeting. Like, I became uh, the, the, the individual in, in the story of the Good Samaritan. Like, I got, I got, this is church stuff. We got church stuff. But everybody's looking, and so I don't say that out loud, right? And so I'm, I go and praise the Lord. I sit down, and I talk with a man named Dylan. And Dylan is broken. To your tattoos all up. Yes. Yeah, God does all kinds of things. Amen. And I sit down with Dylan. I'm like, okay, Dylan, you my people. I've been there. I know exactly where you're at. You know what Dylan told me? So I was walking down the side of Highway 51. And I didn't want to live anymore. And I kept thinking as every truck passed by, just step out in front. Just step out in front of that truck. And I got to share with him the good news of Jesus. And right then and there, he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of his life. On a Tuesday morning, a man who walked into our church not wanting to live and give his life up was given true life through Christ. 
going through drug rehabilitation, getting plugged into a program, going to go get sober, go, go through uh, this process of becoming healed and, and whole physically as God continues to restore him spiritually. God gives us signs all the time. We see Mary's visibility, that end response of that. We see in verse 38 that now, now Mary says this. She says to the angel who told her twice, behold, I want you to see this. She says, behold, I want you to see this. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now that speaks of Mary's maturity, the maturity in her faith. She's probably 13 years old, 14 at the oldest. She's not worried about what anybody else is going to say. She's got to go and tell the man that she's betrothed to, I'm pregnant, and God did it. <laughs> How do you think that went over? That brother needed a dream. If anybody needed a dream, it was Joseph, and God gave it to him. I could be killed and considered an adulterer. My son's probably going to always carry a stigma that he's illegitimate. People aren't going to believe the story that Joseph is just his earthly father and is not his real father. In fact, the Pharisees will even bring that up, the son of a carpenter. That's not even your real child. She knew all of that, but yet she willingly accepted what it was that God was calling her to now, Mary's maturity was grounded in Mary's security. Look, she says, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. She knew who God was. She knew who she was a servant of. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Have you said that to God? Let it be to me according to your word. I know it's probably going to be hard, and I know there are going to be people that are going to scoff, and I know there are going to be people that are going to criticize, and I know there are going to be people that aren't going to believe that God has called me to this specific thing. Uh, maybe that's going to the mission field. Maybe that's opening your home to uh, uh, adoption or foster care. I, I, I know that you know there are times that Grace and I have said we're opening back up our home for uh, foster care, and individuals have kind of looked at us like, are you sure? As sure as God has given us the calling. We're sure. I believe God is calling everybody in this room to serve him in a specific way. And oftentimes what we do in our human minds is we try to come up with excuses. But the greatest thing that we can learn from Mary is that she was a servant. She says, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you trust God enough to say, let it be to me according to your word? Do you truly trust God wherever you are at in your life right now to say, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Because God is not limited by our limitations. God is not discouraged by our discouragements. God is not hindered by our shortcomings. When you release your life into the hands of God, can live a safe and secure life. You feel safe in his home? Do you feel safe in his home? The only way you can answer that in the negative is if you fail to understand who he is 
and what his word has promised you. He loves you, will never leave you nor forsake you. When you try to hold your life for yourself, you end up killing it. But when you let it go into the hands of God, you actually get the greatest thing that you can ever receive. His direction and his guidance for your life.